it's not like a Jedi, right? Who's a Jedi? That's not the way it is. Every Christian, everyone who has been baptized is called to be a missionary. There's an urgency of missionary activity, especially at our time. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your seasonal Catholic podcast on evangelization. My name is Mike Gomer-Gormley, and I am joined, as always, by Dave, the surprise is real, Van Vickle. How you doing, Dave? I'm good. I'm good. What is, what's the surprise? The surprise is how often I try to shock you when we start the show. Yeah. I try to do it every time. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Or, or sometimes, like, you'll say something before the show that we can't talk about and yeah. I'll be laughing hysterically for the next. And then I immediately jump into yeah. the welcome. Yeah. yeah. It's a seasonal show. How's it going for you? Uh, this has been awesome. I, I, I like recording in person like this and I love doing the series on this document. I love, you know, obviously I always roll my eyes when people say how much they love Pope John Paul II because it's like Pope John Paul is our generation. Like he belongs to our generation, not to a singular person. So, so just calm down there. But, um, <laughs> but no, I'm really excited about this document in particular. I think the last document we talked about, Redemptor Ominis, even though is very practical, yeah. this is like this is like boot camp, right? It's like okay, here's what you're gonna do. This is what the church is to do. This is how we're supposed to do it, and and let's let's get moving. Yeah, for those of you just joining us, we are doing a series, St. John Paul II and the New Evangelization. We are taking three documents, three of his encyclicals, and we're trying to understand what does Catholic evangelization and discipleship look like through the lens of this sainted pontiff. Pope John Paul II was the greatest evangelist of the 20th century. He spilled his whole life, his papacy, his early years, everything to win souls for Jesus Christ. So the first document that we started with was Redeemer of Man, the first of his actual encyclicals as a pope, where he lays out in part his vision that he has for the papacy standing in after Vatican II and then looking forward to the new millennium. Now we're going on to the second work, which is the mission of the Redeemer, a crucial work that examines the missionary dimension of the church and how it shapes everything we do as Catholic Christians, like Dave said. This is on the boots, practical. This is, it's not just high theology. It's not just vision statements. It is, like he said, boot camp for Catholics. Finally, next, uh, the next series that we're going to do is this is going to be a two-parter on Veritatis Splendor. So the longest of the documents, we're going to spend the shortest amount of time, but we want to show the connection between the kerygma, what it means to be a missionary, and also discipleship. That is forming people in the life of Christ. Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, so the sacramental mission, as well as teaching them all I've commanded you. So we want to show how all of these are of a piece together through the lens of JP2. So right now, get out your document, read with us. Dave, what are we going to focus on for today's show? We're going to talk about an introduction to the document and how it continues on his theology of the council. And uh, we're also going to talk about the Holy Spirit, um, how the Holy Spirit is really the soul of evangelization. And finally, we're going to talk um, in particular about the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God will play a very important role and a very important theme in this document and how uh, it is the same and how it is different from the church here on earth. So yeah, 
That is awesome. I'm ready to go. Yeah. Pope John Paul II, uh, very clearly from the moment, the first moment of his pontificate was going to be different. It was going to be yeah. changed. His pontificate would be one that was very much informed by the council. This document is clearly a continuation of what the council was trying to do to open up wide the doors to Christ, right? Uh, all, all throughout the world. Uh, he starts it out with a very stern, kind of almost ominous statement. The very first line is, the mission of Christ the Redeemer, which is entrusted to the church, is still very far from completion. Yeah. Uh, uh, this is an interesting statement, and I don't know if we, uh, modern man, realize how interesting this is, but we tend to forget about the fact that so many people have not heard the gospel so many people have not had it proclaimed effectively. Yeah. This was a major issue for theology throughout the development of the church, right? I mean, there was very strong statements about no one outside the church receiving salvation because uh, theologians thought that the whole world had heard the gospel preached, right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden they discover the new world of America and they're like, whoa, there are pagan cultures that have never heard the gospel. What about these people, right? It changes yeah. their mind. Pope John Paul is fast forwarding this like you know to our culture where not only has our culture heard the gospel it's rejected it and raised a generation that needs to hear it once again this is why he starts it out with it's very far from completion by the way i i read the other day yeah that at this time there are less people who have heard the gospel living in the world than ever in history wow so that's if that's true, that is very so the birth rate is outpacing right. the believer rate. <laughs> right. Wow, that is crazy. Yeah. Another thing of the context of this encyclical, which he brings up in paragraph four, but it's the idea that a lot of people after Vatican II, again, you have to remember that Pope John Paul and Pope Benedict, part of their papacies were to correctly interpret the council for the church. And one of this is, wait a second, why are we engaged in mission? Shouldn't we just be engaged in interreligious dialogue? Right. Interreligious dialogue is very important right. when people have to live with each other. Pope John Paul, when he was a young boy, Carol Wojtyla playing on the, the Jewish side of the Catholics versus the Jews soccer team in his public school, he understood the, like, we have to live together, right? right? That's interreligious dialogue. But that doesn't stop the missionary activity of the church. And it did. After Vatican II, a lot of missionary orders gave up their missionary zeal, right? right? And people stopped preaching the gospel. So he's like, nope. So if, if I would give one phrase to summarize this encyclical, it is the urgency of missionary activity. Right. He uses that phrase a ton. Yeah, he's clearly trying to change turn the ship here. He's clearly trying to turn the ship to, to make sure that all Catholics, all Christians everywhere realize that they are missionaries. Yeah. And the, the theme verse that he uses is for, if I preach the gospel, it gives me no ground for boasting for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me. If I do not preach the gospel, first Corinthians nine sixteen. Love it. And that, that pushes us onward. All right. Let's yeah, dive. Pushes onward. Uh, one of the things I want to point out here is he's gonna, he's going to bring up this theme and he brought it up a little bit in the last document, but this theme of basically that we can't just be teachers that we also have to be doers of the word. Mm. And in his introduction to the document, he says, in the name of the whole church, I sense an urgent duty to repeat this cry of St. Paul that Gomer just talked about. He says, from the beginning of my pontificate, 
I have chosen to travel the ends of the earth in order to show this missionary concern. And surely he did. I mean, yeah. he, this is a pope who traveled more than any pope ever in history, yeah. okay, ever in history, and went after the youth, the young, the families, went after people that he could try to draw into the flock of the Lord. And and, and he was an effective evangelist. One of my favorite stories in the Mission Ad Gentes, which means to the nations, to the non-Christian groups, the Mission Ad Gentes, he did, I mean, think about this. Pope John Paul went to Morocco. Yeah, right. right. And he held a, a prayer meeting, or he held a, a conference, basically, with Moroccan youth in yeah. a soccer stadium. Yeah. Right? And it was tens of thousands of Muslim Moroccan youth. Yeah. And there he is with them, right? And, like, just think of... Wait, the Pope is talking to these people. Like, what is this? He's a missionary Pope. Like, that yeah. was his zeal. Yeah. Right? His heart was all about it. Yeah. He was going to go no matter what. He was going to constantly go. And, yeah. and, uh, I, I think one of his last words uttered was, like, I searched for you and now you've come for me because the youth yeah. outside were There were people, young people were chanting and yeah. rate his last words were, and now you come to me, right? So in chapter one of this encyclical, uh, the very first statement, he links it to the last encyclical that we just studied. These are intrinsically linked. You know, you shouldn't separate them. They're not the same, but they he had clearly intended, as he set out to write the first one, that this would be next. He says, in my first encyclical, in which I set forth the program of my pontificate, I said that the church's fundamental function in every age, and in particularly ours, is to direct man's gaze to point the awareness and experience of the whole of humanity toward the mystery of Christ. He will come back over and over again to the fact that the church is to point to the mystery of Christ, that that is what missionary action is. What I want to get across to you in this very first episode is how important missionary activity is and how he sets it at the heart of the church, that it's not something that we're like, hey, who? it's not like a Jedi, right? Who, who's a Jedi? That's not the way it is. Every Christian, everyone who has been baptized is called to be a missionary. And this is the call of this document is that there's an urgency of missionary activity, especially at our time. Yeah. And there is no one who comes to the father except by Jesus, right? There is yeah. no one. There is no one who is saved that comes to the father except by Jesus. So who are we in the church to deny missionary activity? What is the difference between mission and in a religious dialogue in a religious dialogue seeks to live in peace and to mutually enrich one another by your culture, by your religion, by your faith, by your history, by all that, which is authentically human found in Buddhism and Islam and in Judaism and in secular humanism, to be honest, like there is a lot there that is, that is human that we can draw from sure. that's where interreligious dialogue comes from but what is mission mission is okay that's great as far as it goes but in the heart of of the church is this desire so that people can find themselves in christ and that's the difference fundamentally right, right. there's a primacy of jesus christ in in our evangelization and the fact that uh salvation exists because of jesus and yeah. through jesus Anyone, you know, I was reading this the other day. I'm, I'm writing a paper on it in case you're wondering. Oh, but, nice. Uh, St. Thomas has several theories about people who die without outside of the church. Yeah. And like the just, one of the theories was that when they died, Christ would reveal himself, basically preach the, the gospel. The noble pagan kind yeah, of thing? Yeah. Okay. Would reveal himself to them mm. and they would have a chance to accept or deny. Mm. I love it because once again, it's like 
you know, it's this idea, right, that that we go to the Father through Christ. But he mentions in the beginning of this document that faith in Christ is directed to man's freedom, and this is going to be like maybe one of the most constant themes of his pontificate throughout yeah. the theology of the body, throughout several of the documents that he'll write throughout his you know seminal documents. He's going to talk about the fact that the world does not understand true freedom and that faith in Christ is what gives us true freedom, basically freedom to be able to do what we ought to do as opposed to freedom to be able, like as license to yeah, do anything. to do whatever we want. Gomer's kind of freedom. <laughs> the kind of freedom that says A or B. Um, no, the other important distinction that he makes in this first chapter is, and this might, you might need some help with this if you never studied theology, but the idea of the word and Jesus, yeah, right? And the word, the logos in Greek is the second person of the Trinity who took on to himself a human nature. So we don't say the preexistent logo. So the son of God from all eternity before he assumed our humanity, we don't call the word Jesus, right? Even though he is Jesus, right. Jesus refers to the word made flesh, right? Right. And it's really hard for us to kind of understand this. And it keep is that, that, in our heads. but the understanding of it, what he wants to do is he has this phrase that he calls salvific universality, that because Jesus is the word, St. John says in, in the prologue, the word is the true light that enlightens every man, right? So in some sense, the word or the seeds of the word, which the church fathers would say, has been sown in the hearts of every man. So that's why you can go to a secular humanist. It's why you can go to a Buddhist or a Muslim and see in it a a, uh, a proto-evangelion, a first taste of the gospel, a preparation for the gospel. But ultimately he said, so you can't separate the word, which is universal from Christ, who was a particular man in the world. And so our proclamation of Christ, often what we do is we look for this salvific universality of the word. We look for those seeds of glory already sown in our brothers and sisters. Yeah. Which is right. St. Paul's kind of classic, you know, you have an unnamed God, right? You even have yeah. an altar to an unnamed God. Let me tell you who this might be, right? Yeah, yeah. and and St. Augustine even like, you know, St. Augustine basically allows for no one who is not part of the church to to be saved, but he does allow the noble pagan. Why? Because of their 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 desire to commune with the logos, right? Yeah. The logos, the word. Yeah. So the word. So um it's important to understand that, that, that man, that missionary efforts are directed towards freedom for, towards liberation for man. And that's why like this entire, like the word mission is kind of throughout this entire document mm -hmm. because it's like, it, it is, that's exactly, it's like almost like a military operation, the way he's describing what we're supposed to be about. He also does this little, I don't know if you noticed this, but he basically gives a little catechesis on what the gospel is hmm, what paragraph uh it's uh, it's the second chapter but paragraph 11 where he says we cannot but speak where he says that jesus christ right basically says who he is proves it with miracles so that we can have faith right hmm. and that is like a, a, an interesting thing that i think all evangelists need to learn is that that is the pattern of the gospel right that this person, Jesus Christ comes onto the scene and he makes claims that are not just bold but illegal not just illegal, but punishable by death. Mm. And then he proves those claims by doing miraculous deeds. And that that it gives us uh, an ability to have faith, right? And, and the final miraculous deed, obviously, rising from the dead, conquering death, 
right? And so he gives us like this kind of little catechesis on what what is it? What is the gospel like? Why did they write these? And and that's what they wrote. They wrote as proofs of the incarnation and that Jesus was who he said he was. Yeah, going back to that phrase from my buddy Brian Greenfield, who said we keep evaluating our current relationship with God from our past experience, but we really need to base it on our desires. Like yeah. what, what oh, cool. do we authentically desire? Here's the great word from JP two. The church offers mankind the gospel, that prophetic message, which responds to the needs and aspirations of the human heart and always remains good news. The church cannot fail to proclaim that Jesus came to reveal the face of God and to merit salvation for all humanity by his cross and resurrection. Again, you have that, the needs and aspirations of the human heart. And I feel like as evangelists, we get away from that. We want to prove propositions, right? Like yeah. I get like that very often. Right. And right now I'm in a big uh, apologetics mode because there is a famous evangelical, I'll just leave it obscurely like that, a famous evangelical who's converting to Catholicism somewhat publicly, but he was recommended by Scott Hahn to come to my church. Yeah. And he didn't know that I, I'd met him once before and he didn't know that I was the RCIA guy. So he texts me, he's like, so, <laughs> yeah. so it's interesting because, so I'm like, okay, I got to get these arguments and these arguments and I'm going through and listening to, I mean, I've probably spent the last two days uh, before coming here, listening to hundreds of arguments on sola scriptura yeah. and sola uh, by grace alone, faith alone, faith and works, all that stuff. And I constantly have to pull back and realize like, okay, arguments have a place, yeah. but what we're doing is proposing Christ and how, especially the Eucharist right. fulfills the desires, every desire of the human heart. Yeah. And don't you think that's always the story of a, of, of a person who converts, right? That it's like, it's the fullness of who he is. Yeah. We're, we're proclaiming the fullness. It's not that Protestants aren't proclaiming Christ. Yeah. They certainly are. We're proclaiming the fullness of who he is, which is that unbelievable self-gift in the Eucharist. Okay. Yeah. So, so the Pope talks about, uh, he, he labels this chapter or this, uh, this paragraph, we cannot but speak, you know, uh, yeah. commenting on the book of Acts where, of course, we have to talk about the things that we said. And this should be a natural part of being in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I know that for myself, it was the very first thought in my mind when I gave my life to the Lord, like when I had my con conversion, I'm using air quotes to say conversion experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was like, I have to tell everyone about this. And by the way, as an aside note, when I got home from the conference where I gave my life to the Lord, I went to the closest Catholic bookstore and I bought all the encyclicals I could find that either said mission or evangelization, <laughs> and it was this one and Evangelii Nuziani. So that's so uh, funny. So, he, so he's talking about like the the fact that look, if we're not speaking about the gospel, evangelization isn't like an optional thing, and it's not like a kind of thing like uh, how am I going to serve in my parish? Am I going to be mm. an usher? Am I going to be this? Evangelization is part of the ne the necessary part of Christian life, and it's part of discipleship. You cannot call yourself a Christian without sharing Jesus Christ. Yeah. He says mission is an issue of faith and accurate. This is so painful an accurate indicator of our faith in Christ and his love for us. That's scary. That is scary. Right. Because we have failed miserably in, in regard, at least in the last hundred years with regards to mission. So in the, in that paragraph 11, he goes on, he says to the question, why mission? We reply with the church's faith and experience that true liberation consists in opening oneself to the love of Christ. 
In him and only in him are we set free from all alienation and doubt, from slavery to the, pow- to the power of sin and death. Christ is truly our peace. The love of Christ impels us, giving meaning and joy to our life. Mission is an issue of faith, an accurate indicator of our faith in Christ and his love for us. See, this is where me and Dave signal out the same paragraph. Oh, yeah. Well, well, of course. I caught the end, but he caught the beginning. Of course. Of course. So we need to do this. We need to understand that often we reduce our relationship with Christ or our vision of Christianity. This is like what I was talking about with apologetics. We reduce it to a series of doctrines, right? And we fight over the veracity of those doctrines and we argue over the veracity of these doctrines. And the Pope is trying to warn us that this is a temptation that reduces Christianity to a merely human wisdom, a pseudoscience, he says, of well-being. And I think that is true. He, he criticizes it. He says, our world, our heavily secularized world, calls it a gradual secularization of salvation. And so when people strive for the good of man, but man who is truncated, reduced to his merely horizontal dimension. I mean, isn't that the problem that we have in the church? Like we've accepted that false gospel of just the social gospel. Like there absolutely is a social dynamic to the gospel of bringing people like to liberate a soul from sin also means liberating them from bondage to issues of poverty and all this stuff. Of course. Yeah. You never hear JP two being like, why don't you go and serve the poor with, uh, at, by fixing their theology, right. you know, like, right, yeah, right. like let's make sure they believe the right things about the dogma of the immaculate conception. No, we go and serve and love the poor. Right. So, but the secularization of this is like the repulsive instinct that I have, like, so I, 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 tell me what you think about this. Often conservatives care about doctrine and morals and liberals care about the social dynamism of the gospel. So the social teaching, social justice, and you will hear like when people get fussy over liturgy, it's like, yeah, whatever, man, but I'm doing what Jesus did and I'm loving the poor and the outcasts and whatever. And there's often these like paired off domains where we fight, but it's like, neither of them have the whole gospel because you can't love your neighbor as yourself and also have good liturgy. Like your good liturgy should lead to good community, should lead to service of the poor, should lead to missionary dynamism. But if good liturgy leads to insular communities, you're not worshiping Christ. You're worshiping yourselves in the liturgy. Yeah. Yeah. I I agree with you, but I've almost always found that if, that they're not very good at even what they're saying, they're good at (laughs) if they're not holding them together. Yeah. Well, truly. I mean, absolutely. Like, like, I don't remember who, who had the quote, but basically like, it was like social justice without love leads to the death camps. I don't remember where oh, yeah. that phrase came from, but I remember reading it's something like that. Sounds like the dictatorship of relativism by Pope Benedict. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's something very, very, I don't remember who the author was, but anyways, I mean, that is exactly what I mean is that like, you can't take Jesus out yeah. and call it mercy. That's not the way it works. Yeah. Man, there is so much here. Where else are we going to go? I want to talk about the kingdom because this is going to be important. Oh, this is chapter right. two, the so, kingdom of God. Right. So so he he's taking us through the life of Jesus Christ. And of course, one of the seminal signs that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, is that he proclaims the kingdom, right? This is an important idea. He sets the stage for the kingdom in the Old Testament, right? We have like the Old Testament kingdom of God, which is really the kingdom of Israel that God led, right? I mean, uh, it's supposed to point to the kingdom, which is the kingdom of heaven, okay? And so when Christ comes on earth, that's what he's proclaiming is the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning that this is it. We're we're invading, we're invading the earth and your time is is short to 
anyone who would oppress people from keeping them part of this kingdom. And I, I, I know I shouldn't do this on a podcast, but I want to read the entire first paragraph of, of chapter two. Oh, are we in 13? Yeah, we're in 12. We're in 12. 12, 12. It is God who is rich in mercy. He's quoting himself, which is awesome. <laughs> it is God who is rich in person, whom Jesus Christ has revealed to us as father. It is his very son who in himself has manifested him and made him known to us. I wrote this at the beginning of my encyclical Dives and Misericordia to show that Christ is the revelation and incarnation of the Father's mercy. Salvation consists in believing and accepting the mystery of the Father and of his love, made manifest and freely given in Jesus through the Spirit. And then he says, and this is so important, in this way, the kingdom of God comes to be fulfilled. The kingdom prepared for in the Old Testament, brought about by Christ, and in Christ and proclaimed to all peoples by the church, which works and prays for its perfect and definitive realization. So important for evangelists to understand, what does it mean to join the kingdom of heaven? It is to accept the mercy of the Father in Jesus Christ. I love the phrase, the, to accept the Father and the mercy that he expressed in Jesus, Jesus by the Spirit or through the Spirit. Yeah. Like, it's just incredible. It's just incredible. And who conceives of Christianity in, in those terms, way. like in, in, and I don't just mean like academically, I mean, yeah, like, yeah, we could probably say that like, yes, I father, son, Holy spirit, the son is merciful, but it's like, no, 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 the, the love that God, the father pursues you is Jesus yeah. and your receptivity and response to that is the Holy spirit. So you and I have been talking about praying the liturgy of the hours. Yeah. And I, I really feel like it's changed my life. Yeah, me too. Okay. So it's just been a month now. This is yeah. my first month and. I, with I start, your Bishop Aaron, yeah, Lord on with, fire yeah. Thing. Is that what you use? So good, yes. Okay. I love it. All right. So I love it so much, and I really <laughs> do feel like it's life-changing. But how many times does the psalmist say something to the effect of, turn your face, O Lord. Yeah. Let us see thy face, O Lord. Yeah. And that, Christ is the answer to that, right? Mm-hmm. That the face of Christ. And, and not only is Christ the answer to that, we're going to get deeper than that and say, we're the answer to that, right? That we are an incarnational church. Yeah, and evangelization should be incarnational, and I'm not just using that because it's the buzzword that every Catholic uses. Right? Yeah, yeah, it used to be missional, now it's incarnational. But the again, the sphere of the church is entirely the mystery of the incarnation and redemption, which we learned in Redemptor Hominis. Right, that's the sphere. That's where we live. Right. And so, if this is what he's doing, then that's what we're doing, right? Yeah, right. And it's just uh, yeah, he just layers this so well. So, okay, so he, he yeah. moves on in, in, he in uh, paragraph thirteen. He goes on, yeah, and he talks about and and basically what I want you to get across is like that's our job to proclaim the kingdom. We're proclaiming the kingdom, and the last sentence he says his power, the secret effectiveness of his actions lies in his total identification with the message he announces. He proclaims the good news, not just by what he says or does, but by what he is. Mm. And that is the whole point, is that the kingdom of heaven is at hand because Christ is here with us. And that is an important uh, lesson for us, right? That we can't just proclaim it. We have to, it has to be part of us, right? I, I always use the analogy with people when I work in parishes of, the kingdom of heaven is like poured into hearts. Like if, it, like you know, if your heart was a cup, right? Yeah, it's always poured into the cup, and it can it overflow into other people. Yeah, you can't grab the pitcher. That's not the way it works. And mm. like sprinkle it on who you want to. You have to allow that cup to be filled in your own heart and let it overflow. Isn't that funny? Because we all think that we would be better managers of the pitcher. Oh yeah, that that is the. That, I think that is the hardest part of evangelization. Yeah. Don't you? 
Yeah. Uh, and I think for parents in particular, mm-hmm. that is the hardest part of evangelization. Yeah. Because we think like, well, we know what's best for them. Yeah. And I think of Pope John Paul and how often he references the family and how often, how many times after his mother's death, two days after the funeral of his mother, when he was eight, his father took him and his brother and they went to, and his sister had already died, took him and his brother and they went to a, a an open air Marian shrine. And he said, listen, you still need a mother, make Mary your mother. And over and over again, he would walk in late at night and yeah. he would hear his father right. on his knees in prayer. Right. And he would say that, that was one of the, one of the greatest graces of his life was to wake up to get water or something yeah. and see him at three in the morning praying for Yeah. Him. And he said it was a kind of first seminary yeah, for my three right, A first seminary. And when you think about that, right, the power of the family witnessing to Jesus as the Lord, like I want my kids to be devout Roman Catholics. So my wife told my kids, cause we're in the shadow of the, of the hill. Right. Um, Shannon said that we're going to go to noon mass and three of my four kids went, Oh, why? Yeah. You know, daily mass. Why? And Thomas started crying, you know, and I'm like, Oh, come on guys. If Jesus can carry a cry. Okay. I'm not going to give you, <laughs> but how often as parents do we want to grab the picture and be like, no, you will be Catholic. You yeah, will love it. Right. But it's like, okay, it comes from my overflowing. Like yeah. I, there were many times when my father, I would, you know, walk in at night and he'd be on his knees praying. Like he had the faith of like a child. Right. Yeah. And it was so much a part of my parents' life yeah. that it's like, well, you know, I don't know if it's true, but they certainly believe it. You know, like oh yeah. They're certainly living it. You know, in those times of doubt and my angsty teenagerness, like, yeah. You know, and there's a famous story where, um, I can't remember exactly who it was a famous atheist in the 1800s goes to hear, um, Charles Weslin preach the, yeah, um, sure. famous Methodist preacher. And he goes, and someone said, what are you doing here? You're an atheist. You don't believe in any of this stuff. And he goes, but that guy sure does. Yeah. And that's, what we need to hear. That's what we need to understand is like, yeah, I love that. We can't move the picture. No, it can only f- over our contribution is what overflows from our own heart. Right. And so he, he kind of expresses that point in the very last sentence here. He says, St. John tells us that God is love. Every person therefore is invited to repent and believe in God's merciful love. The kingdom will grow insofar as every person learns to turn to God in the intimacy of prayer as to a father and strives to do his will, right? So that's how the kingdom grows. It grows person at a time in your own heart. And clearly, right, when Christ is proclaiming the kingdom, repent and believe are the words that go with it. Yeah. Join the kingdom. Yeah. And of course, we we join the kingdom in an eschatological sense. It's an anticipation of, of the kingdom of heaven, right? I mean, yeah. yes, of course, we join the kingdom, but we will fully join that kingdom when we reach eternity. Yeah, the eschatological reality, the eschaton, meaning the end, right? So then Pope John Paul goes on to describe the characteristics of the kingdom. Yeah, Yeah. this paragraph is called The Characteristics of the Kingdom and Its Demands. Yeah, yeah. And this is huge because beforehand he gives you, okay, what do we mean by kingdom? God chose a particular people, the Israel, and of Israel he gave the Jews the scepter, right, the the tribe of Judah, and of that the, the house of David. Right. And so we understand like there's an earthly kingdom, but it's not really what God wants. When Samuel anoints Saul as the first king over Israel, there's this famous thing where God responds to Saul, Saul or Samuel, 
He says, they're not rejecting you. Right. They're rejecting me as king. And so the, uh, the incredible thing is like, oh, we want a king over us. Guess what God did? He still, he'll write straight with their crooked lines. You want a king? You don't want God as your king? You want a man as your king? Well, guess what? I'm going to enter into humanity and yeah. I'm going to become, become your king. king. So here's the characteristics of the kingdom now fulfilled. So everything that was anticipated by ancient Israel is now fulfilled in the person of Christ and in his kingdom that he brings. Right. So fulfilled in the person of Christ, that means that it's also characteristic of the kingdom, right? Jesus the is the kingdom basically. Um, and so he says two, two gestures are characteristic of Jesus' mission, healing and forgiving. He says, in Jesus' eyes, healings are also a sign of spiritual salvation, namely liberation from sin, right? Uh, and and that, this should be obvious to us, right? That, uh, healing sickness is a, a result of the fall, right? And Jesus comes to undo what happened at the fall. He says, by performing acts of healing, he invites people to faith, conversion, and the desire for forgiveness. I think that this is kind of an important thought here, right, that you know, these acts of healing always, always invite to repentance. They should always invite to repentance. And we mm-hmm. should focus Healing on that. is an encouragement to go further. That's yeah. what JP2 says. Ooh. Because I think a lot of us, we want the healing. Like, you know, you know, this famous story of the paralytic who's lowered through the roof by his buddies, right? And he's laid. And what does Jesus say to him? Son, your faith has healed you. Yeah. Or uh, your sins are forgiven. Yeah. You know, I'm sure he was like, yeah, that's great and all, but can I walk? Right. You know, but it's like, okay, so that you might know the glory of God, rise, take up your mat and walk. But all the healings, all the miracles, St. John doesn't even use the word miracles in his gospel. Right. He uses, or like, he uses the word signs. Signs. Signs indicating who he is. And that's the beautiful thing. Like, the the physical healings are meant to point us to something greater. The sacraments give us that something greater, but often we're disappointed because it's not the lesser healing. Yeah. Like, oh, you just forgave all my sins and, and you know, you just gave me viaticum, the bread for the journey right. as I'm about to die on my deathbed. No, no, no. I want to live longer. Yeah, right. You give me all that stuff right now, right? <laughs> so it's the healing of the soul that Christ wants to really point to that leads to salvation. Yeah. Next sign of the kingdom he'll talk about is uh, liberation from evil. So he says the acts of liberation from demonic possession, the supreme evil, and symbol of sin and rebellion against God are signs that indeed the kingdom has come upon you, right? That the, so of this course is the first you would time. highlight this one. Of course, well, you no, would. no. I mean, it's, a, it's important because <laughs> this is like the first time he's gonna show. There's there's clashing kingdoms here, yeah. right? There's clashing kingdoms. So there there's plenty, plenty trying to draw us away from this kingdom, and Christ will come in and tear whatever he wants. Right? Do you think him. that would be the name of a good Christian punk band, Clashing Kingdoms? I think so. There's casting crowns, jars of clay, clashing, clashing kingdoms. kingdoms. It sounds more like a video game. It does. Okay. Fair enough. But, um, so also a character. So the two gestures are healing and forgiveness. And now we have the acts of liberation from demonic possession. Right. That is bringing the power of God, that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Right. Uh, paragraph 15. What's next? Well, okay. But I do want to say like when he says symbol of sin and rebellion, Mm. he's not saying the devil's a symbol of all evil. He's saying, he's saying that those are symbols of a greater. That uh, demonic possession itself is the supreme evil yeah. and symbol of sin and rebellion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it's important to understand, like, right, this, the symbol is of the greater, basically, exorcism he'll perform on the cross, liberating humanity forever. Wow. 
Yeah. Yeah. So in the uh, paragraph 15, he says the kingdom a- aims at transforming human relationships. It, and it's important to understand this. It grows gradually as people slowly learn to love, forgive, and serve one another. So this is why I always go back to the works of mercy. And I've been saying this to my wife. Like, I don't know why I've, I've been having this conversation, but I've been saying to her that retired people should get into works of mercy, that that's what they should do because I just recently had a conversation with this couple who've been retired for like six years and they're like at each other's throats. They're like not happy. They're very, and I, and I keep thinking like you have, you have too much. Like in America, we have too much. Like yeah. you need to serve people. And I'm, and my point in all this is like mercy, mercy is an important aspect of the kingdom of heaven. If you want to spread the kingdom of heaven, mm-hmm. sh- show mercy, right? Show mercy. And I think like it's it's a great way to learn how to evangelize, don't you? I think yeah, because you know Reverend Timothy Keller, Presbyterian pastor, calls it gospel neighboring, and he says when you show mercy to your neighbor, when you love your neighbor as yourself, like if I were poor and someone were rich, how would I want them to help me in this moment? He says nothing opens the human heart more for gospel messaging that is to actually preach the gospel than does gospel neighboring. Oh, okay. Gospel neighboring, just being merciful to your neighbor and and whatever, your neighbor in need, is how we manifest the kingdom. And then when we tell people about the kingdom, it's easier to believe it because you've already been manifesting it. So, okay, can I, yeah. well, let me ask you this. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you this. I think you said this, but I want to make sure Uh-oh. that you and the good Reverend Timothy said this. <laughs> but gospel neighboring is proclaiming the kingdom right there, okay at a point there's this overlap but like the idea of okay i'm here to serve you even before i actually tell you ah, the gospel okay. of jesus okay. christ okay. right yeah, yeah, yeah so for instance um there's this wonderful book by um douglas hyde who was a famous convert from communism yeah to catholicism in the 1950s he was that like chief recruiter in communism or, or trainer or whatever in 1950s um uk and he said it was easy to make communists in the UK at that time because the people who were so-called Christian or whatever, you know, they were the, the, the landlords. And when they would kick out some impoverished old lady from her apartment and it was the communists who organized demonstrations and who gave money to buy her rent or, you know, prevent her from being evicted. He said, before we ever said a single word about the proletariat and Marxism, we already won the people because they saw that we were willing to put skin on the ga- uh, skin in the game. Yeah. We use our own money to pay for this woman's rent. And the whole time I'm reading this, I'm like, this is exactly what converted pagan Rome. Yep. He said, you know, Julian, the apostate emperor right. wrote to his high priest peg- of paganism and said, see how the Galileans take care of even our poor. And that's what breaks down the resolve of people who'd be like, Oh, I don't know about this. I mean, that's what the Romans saw. They saw self-sacrificial generosity, right? right? The St. Peter in first Peter chapter three, he goes to this thing. He says, don't return evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but rather bless and not curse. Yeah. That's, that's how they won Rome. And so, but, but when it's it's why mother Teresa called the missionaries of charity, right? They're, very rarely did you see them on street corners preaching like a like a street preacher. That wasn't it. They they were with the dying. They were with the poor. They were with the lame. 
Yeah. As we wrap up, I wanted to point out something in, um, there's a lot more that we can talk about here, but there's this wonderful phrase where he says that Dave talked about where it grows gradually as people slowly learn to love, to forgive, to serve one another. That's what happened to our culture. The gospel took a took centuries to permeate yeah. a an honor and shame society to transform it into a love and mercy society. So that now, even the most ardent atheistic secular humanists, when they look at humanity, they look at it through the lens of merciful love, forgiveness, healing. Like they can't help but do that. Famous atheist uh, in London, I can't remember his name. He converted. He was a historian writing on ancient Rome, and he so he reads all the great philosophers of the Roman Empire. Then he starts reading the great works of you know the Gallic Wars by uh, sure. Julius Caesar and all this stuff. And he says like, when I got to the end of the poets, I hated ancient Rome, and then I read Romans, and I realized this is a man I can agree with, and I'm an atheist. Yeah. And he said he, it took him this like stark like. Oh, these people over here in their honor, shame society, all they did was live the libido dominati, like the desire to dominate. And here was St. Paul saying, show honor where honor is due, love where love is due, respect where respect is due, you know, insofar as possible, live in harmony with everyone, you know, like all this stuff. And he's like, I realized at that moment I was a Christian. I just didn't know Christ. And it was that that is what we're doing is like, we're trying to show you like the gospel. And this is how he ends paragraph 15. The kingdom is the concern of everyone, individual society and the world. So yes, that's our mandate to serve individual society in the world. But when the gospel gets into individuals, it gets into society, yeah. it gets into the world. Right. It's a great program for proclaiming and bringing the kingdom of heaven. We're going to go for a break real quick. We come back, we're going to talk about how the church serves the kingdom of heaven. Uh, you'll hear from our fine friends at Ascension Press who, so who produced this uh, podcast. As always, if you have any questions, email us at eksb at ascensionpress.com. The most important person ever to walk the face of the earth. The source and summit of all things Catholic. But do we really know him? Hi, I'm Dr. Marcellino D'Ambrosio, sometimes known as Dr. Italy. For 30 years, I've taught about Jesus in Catholic University classrooms, on TV, and on radio. And I've been surprised at how Catholics, fascinated with so many of the unique features of the rich Catholic tradition, seem to take for granted the very basis of it all, the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Some other Catholic Bible teachers I know have noticed the very same problem. So, Jeff Cavins, Dr. Edward Sri and I decided to collaborate on a groundbreaking study that would focus simply on the life and teaching of Jesus Christ, filmed on location in the land where it all happened. Those who take this journey with us will learn amazing new things about the gospel stories they thought they knew so well, about his family, his friends, his enemies, his miracles. But even more importantly, they will come to know Jesus in a new and astonishing way that will make a surprising difference in their everyday lives. This study, Jesus, the Way, the Truth, and the Life, helps you learn with all your senses. The videos filmed on site in the Holy Land will change the way you visualize the gospel stories. The study guide includes gorgeous images, provocative quotes, illuminating maps, and challenging questions. The book that accompanies the study will have you riveted all the way to the end. Order the study pack now at ascensionpress.com forward slash Jesus and get immediate at-home access to the videos and the study guide while the printed components are shipped to you. Again, you can order Jesus the way, the truth, and the life at ascensionpress.com forward slash 
Jesus. You'll be glad you did. Your life will never be the same. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you bought all the products from Ascension Press so they keep us employed here. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but please remember, remember to email us at EKSB at AscensionPress.com because like I said, even though we're doing these series, we're going to have Q&A shows where we go through your questions. We already have about eight or nine sitting on the magical Excel spreadsheet that I'm sure exists somewhere that is not my laptop because uh, Excel scares me. But we have uh, Dave is going to go through the last few paragraphs, lickety split, and then we're going to give you some practical takeaways. We're, we're going to jump to paragraph 20, and it says the church at the service of the kingdom. I think it's important to understand this, that Christ proclaims the kingdom. He's speaking of the kingdom of heaven, right? He's saying yeah. the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The, the church is a manifestation, Gomer, wouldn't you say, of the kingdom yeah. on earth? It's a, it's a physical manifestation. But what we need to realize is the church is at the service of the kingdom of heaven, right? The church is at the service of the kingdom of heaven. So he says, the church is effectively and concretely at the service of the kingdom. This is seen especially in her preaching, which is a call to conversion, right? So this is what, what Pope John Paul is saying is just what Jesus did on earth, proclaim the kingdom and call to repentance to join said kingdom. Mm -hmm. The church must do today. The church must proclaim a kingdom call to conversion to join such kingdom, and you can join it in a physical manifestation in the Catholic Church in the hopes of the eschatological kingdom of heaven, right, at the end of all time, okay? Uh, he says, eschatological salvation begins even now in newness of life in Christ to all who believed in him, who believed in his name. He gave power to become children of God, right? So, I mean, this should make sense to you, and it should make a, a, a little bit of a difference in how— Catholics and Protestants view these things, right? We don't necessarily believe in like being saved, right? That once saved, yeah. always saved kind of a thing. What we believe is the kingdom of heaven germinates in our heart and slowly it grows and grows and grows until it's the defining force in our whole life, right? The defining yeah. person, Jesus Christ in our whole life so that we can experience it in a real way uh, after death. The church then, he says, the church then serves the kingdom by establishing communities and founding new particular churches and by guiding them to mature faith and charity and openness towards others in service to individuals and society and an understanding and esteem for human institutions. So the church has, this is the mission agentes. The church needs to go to all the world and proclaim the gospel and start new churches so that people can mature, so that the kingdom of heaven can have growth. I just read yesterday, I can't remember what country it is, but they have one Catholic church in the entire country. It's in the Middle East. There's like 3,000 parishioners. It's really Connor? awesome. It might have been. Yeah, I, it might have been that. Yeah. He then says, the church serves the kingdom by spreading throughout the world gospel values, which are an expression of the kingdom and which help people to accept God's plan. But they're not, that's not all it is, right? Yeah. We're, we're not just spreading gospel values. We're not, we are not Buddhism or Confucianism where we're like, you know, the principles of Buddhism could really help the world. It's not like that. Right. We're introducing people to a person, right? That person is Jesus Christ. We want them to be in a relationship, not just learn. I mean, you could learn the golden rule from Jesus, right? Treat others as you would have them treat you, okay? You could learn that, and it's a great thing, but that's not what the church is about. It's about proclaiming a person, and that person lives in our hearts and yeah. expands his kingdom. Yeah, the interesting thing about JP2 wants to show a clear line of the kingdom, the church, and Christ. Christ is the king. He brings the kingdom. Uh, 
The church is the seed and sign and anticipation and instrument of the kingdom, but the church looks for its own ultimate fulfillment, its eschatological fulfillment in the kingdom, right? So you can never separate the kingdom from the church, right? You can never separate the church from Christ. You can never separate Christ from the kingdom. But what we do is we divide those things up all the time. Yeah, we totally. We have a Christ without the church. We have a Christ without the kingdom. We have the kingdom without Christ. That's where people talk about gospel values and we're building a brotherhood of man and peace and all this stuff. And the Pope says that is not the kingdom of revelation. You can never separate the kingdom from the church or from Christ. And so what we want to do is spread gospel values absolutely by spreading the church by bringing people into the kingdom, orienting them to the kingdom, by bringing them baptized members into the body of Christ, into the church. So this is what we want to do for you. We have three questions to ponder, three things for you in examination of conscience based on this. So Dave, why don't you talk about the first one? The Pope uh, makes no bones about it, that if you are a Christian, you are to evangelize. Are you a missionary? That's the question I want you to ask. You. How are you a missionary? And how can you answer that question? Is it sometimes I am, I have been in the past, I've done things, but now I'm done. That's not the way it works. Are you a missionary? Yeah. Number two, do you seek just knowledge or are you out there demonstrating mercy? right? The kingdom of heaven is not reducible to a series of doctrines. We have to manifest it by works of mercy. We ought to do that. The corporal and spiritual works of mercy. We got to be there going out there doing that. So do you? Because I don't sometimes often right now. And finally, the third question is this uh, healing such a a main theme right now seems to be in the church in America and people are broken. So I understand why. But when you seek healing, is it so that you can come closer to Christ or are you just looking for that healing? Uh, The Pope comments on this and and he very clearly says healing is a sign of 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 a deeper relationship that he wants to have yeah healing points us to greater faith and so uh ladies and gentlemen this has been the first of three episodes that we're going to do on mission of the redeemer if you haven't yet google it download it copy and paste it do whatever you want to do but get the document in front of you we're going to go through the next few chapters on the next episode this is one of his most read encyclicals so we want you to be fully trained uh in this equipped for the good work right that's what we want so uh i'm gomer with dave adios god bless y'all god bless